Happy week of Thanksgiving, Dee. Are you going to decorate your table with all kinds of gourds and pumpkins this week? Not this year. Well, maybe after we talk about our vegetable topic, you might be inspired to grow some decorations for next year. That's a hint. Okay. I'll get us started. Ready? Yep. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana, where I have a suburban garden measured in square feet. It's about a third of an acre. And I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden one and a half acres out of seven and a half acres in the country. We call ourselves Garden Angelus because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want others to love it too. Yes, we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. How does your garden grow, Carol? D, it grows closer and closer to winter. Yep. So they came on Tuesday and they cleaned up a bunch of trees, cut back some smoke bushes way back, like I told the guy too. That was nice. I trimmed and mowed the lawn on Wednesday, picked up some leaves for the vegetable garden bed, and then I did that again Saturday afternoon. And cut. I'm cutting just a little bit shorter now because I don't know when my last time to mow was. Maybe it was Saturday. I don't know. Probably mow a couple Could more be. times. Anyway, the microgreens are growing well, and we got some rain on Friday, which was wonderful. How about you? What's your garden like? It was beautiful all week. We're getting rain today, which we're recording this on Sunday. So I planted the garlic. I think Yay! we should get applause in here. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. You do not get applause for procrastination. I finally, I finally got it done. I also planted another amaryllis, and this is a double white, and it'll probably flower after Christmas in January. And I still have paper whites and amaryllis on order, and I got a notice that they shipped. I planted more lettuce seeds. I harvested and ate radishes and spinach. And I want to give a special shout out to the Garland County Master Gardeners in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I want to say thank you for making me feel so welcome. And I will see you guys again next spring because I am speaking at their statewide Master Gardener Conference Excellent. next spring. And I'm also speaking at the Oklahoma Statewide Conference. So that's exciting. And, oh, and I wanted to say one more thing while I'm thinking about it. June, who wrote us on the Garden Angelus, I couldn't get back to her. She wrote us, she was the first person to write and she said, I want the book. So June, send me your address and I will send a year in our gardens by Alan Lacey and what's Nancy, Nancy Goodwin. Goodwin. I couldn't think of her first name for a second. So I will send it to you. So I'm ready to move on to playing favorites now. All right. Well, my favorites is you'll just roll your eyes. Pansies to greet me along my front walk. They're still just, they, they're loving this cool weather and they're blooming their little heads off. And so that's my favorite this week. How about you? They are really happy. I forgot to say that I also made ornaments. Did you see my ornaments on? I did on Instagram. Very nice. Yeah. I figured out how to dry flowers with a little bit of help from Jennifer Husband. She told me what to do and I did it and then I put it and it got more and more fun the more I made them because I got better at it. So we can link, we can do a couple of links to Amazon for the dryer and we can also link to the frames I got, which are really pretty. And it was a lot of fun. To, I did those yesterday. Excellent. So my favorites might be them, but actually it's the fresh spinach that I sewed in September, which hung in there when it was really hot. And you know, I had a couple pieces bolt, but the rest of it didn't bolt. And I harvested a lot of spinach this fall and I ate the last of it this week. And it was really, really good with my radishes that I also harvested. And it was really good with the Campari tomatoes. So that's my tip of the week is if you're missing tomatoes for your summer tomatoes, if you can find the Campari ones that are on the vine at your grocery store, they're not cheap, but they're really good sliced into a salad. And on top of that, there's also another set of tomatoes on the vine that are cherries. And I think they're called sugar bombs. We talked about them before, but we haven't talked about the Camparis. So that wonderful deep green spinach with those deep red tomatoes and my radishes, that was my favorite this week. Yum. So the the Camperi, I know our Costco always has those. They're really good. I mean, they're not, they're not summer, you know. No. 
And they're not inexpensive. They are. No, they're expensive. But if you're only buying for you and your significant other or just you, you know, they're not that bad. And it's a nice, fresh, healthy, delightful thing. Very good. All right. Well, I'm going to do a quote. We're going to go into our first topic. I can smell autumn dancing in the breeze, the sweet chill of pumpkin and crisp sunburnt leaves. Anne Drake did not look her up. I don't know who she is, but I, I know exactly what she's talking about. In the I old took days. some leaves off of my oak leaf hydrangea, the little baby ones, uh-huh. and I put them in some of my ornaments. I dried them. So Very cute. Color. It was cute. Anyway, what were you going to say? I interrupted. Well, the one thing we used to s- smell in the fall was the, s- the smell of burning leaves, but you don't smell that anymore. You don't smell that anymore because it's, mm. it's probably not very that. good for the environment, but I did love the smell of it. And you know what else is not good for the environment? Our flower topic. <laughs> yeah. You got all fired up on this topic, which we have discussed before, but there's even more information about it now. It's not just speculation anymore. No. So uh, my garden club had a speaker named Ellen Jackert, who is well known in Indiana. She's been the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society. And then she worked for Nature Conservancy or maybe the state, I can't remember, managing like 50,000 acres of wild planted areas. So she came to our garden club and her topic was pesticide use in the garden, which I, you know, I think people thought it was going to be boring. But it was a fabulous program. and Because it wasn't about go ahead and use them. It was about the effect of them on. Well, no, no. She do least first. Is that what it was? Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Least first, you know. And so she kind of went through that. And she gave a very balanced view of glyphosate, you know, and that's about the only thing you can use if you want to kill Asian honeysuckle or. Thistle. Autumn clematis. Autumn clematis. Very, I mean, just anything that is just impossible. Poison ivy. They actually, but you don't just like wildly spraying this herbicide everywhere. Spray it very carefully. But the real thing that got you fired up was. Well, she gave an update on what we'll say this once and then we'll give it its nickname the neonicotinoid pesticides. Neonix. Neonix is what everybody calls them. And I, I grabbed some information from Texas A&M and we'll include a link, but it kind of echoes what she said that it was a new class of insecticides in the early 2000s. And it literally means, the name means new nicotine-like insecticide. And Ellen said nicotine was one of the first insecticides. Way back. Way back Because they used to spray it on stuff and it it killed animals. In fact, my grandmother used to use tobacco juice. Yeah. She flat did. And it works as a contact spray, but then they figured out how to put it into a systemic. And that's where we really started to run into yes. trouble. And I talked to a guy years ago when I was at California Spring Trials. He was an insecticide guy and nobody was going near him at the California Spring Trials. But I thought I'd go talk to him and I did. And he was worried about neonics then. This is 2015. Well, yeah, so they are toxic to invertebrates, like the insects, but they are not toxic to mammals, birds, and other higher organisms. Oh, that's right. They're not, unless you smoke them. Then Yes. So they thought, you know, okay, we, we got the thing. And they initially thought that they were very low toxicity to bees. Because they didn't think that they broke the flower barrier. Exactly. They thought that they didn't get into the nectar and the pollen, but unfortunately they were wrong. That's They are systemic and it grows. And so the pollen is contaminated and right with the collapse of the bees and, you know, they have all kinds of theories on what happened, but it's very coincidental that the neonics got started to be used in agriculture much more often about the same time that all happened. Because they thought it was probably better than spraying other stuff that was harmful to humans. And they thought they were doing a good thing. But unfortunately, it had long-reaching consequences. Yes. At least this is what the pest guy, pesticide guy told me. And they have been working for years to try to come up with a systemic pyrethrin that will not break that flower barrier, but we don't, I don't think we have it yet, but well, so here's the thing she said was 
somehow, and she had charts to show this somehow in the in the twenty teens, it became the thing to coat every single kernel of corn that's planted in all those cornfields with neonics. Mm-hmm. And so Keep she says, stuff out of them. if you if you go watch them plant corn, they use an air injection method to get it to the right oh, depth. Yeah. And those little bursts of air dust that you see yeah. coming up, she says that's those are neonics. That's all the insecticide. Oh. And so Purdue has done studies by putting up various catchers, I guess, to see how far from the field do these neonics travel in the air. And okay, the answer so is could, way far. Really far. Too far, way far, and they get on everything, and it's a super bad problem. So that one thing you talked about is there's a bunch of different – well, one thing you wrote notes about, there's a bunch of different kinds of neonics. So the first one I'm extremely familiar with because Bear Advanced Garden brought out systemic rows, insecticides, and disease resistance, and it was very, very effective. On yes. Everything. I you back in the old days when this first happened, I used it for one summer because I didn't know any better. And this right. is this is early. I don't know what year it was, but it was before I got Rose Rosette. So it was really early. And so, and I think I got Rose Rosette in 2009. Anyway, I noticed immediately that my insect population in the whole garden went down. Yeah. And it scared and- me. And so I quit using it. Okay, keep going. Well, and I think you were thinking about acetamiprid is one of the, and you know, you can't just pick up a bottle of insecticide and turn it over and say, oh, does this have neonics in it? Because it doesn't say it's a neonic. So you have to look they took at this that off list. the market. You know, in the beginning, when they first brought these out, they were like, neonics are the future and they're the best and oh, all no. that kind of stuff, remember? And so they put it on everything. And then they went through a state, then they realized that the bee population was having trouble and that people had heard about neonics and were worried about them. And Europe was worried first and banned them way. They're not banned here yet, but they banned them there. Anyway, yeah, they quit saying they're neonics. Okay, keep going. It's, yeah, I, I but they're still distressing. Yeah, yeah. So that's Sorry. the way it was in Garden Club. It was a very, you know, it was a very, it was an excellent program. When we got to this part, and then she she gave an example of a certain type of moth up in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and they've tracked almost gone, right? Completely almost gone. And then they talked about how farmers who were planting like wild areas like hedgerows and stuff next to their farm fields thinking that's a good They're thing just killing well, things there's no there's no insects in there because all those neonics are getting into those flowers and stuff so it's not a good thing and here's the distressing thing about all those co- kernels of corn i'm i'm laughing but i i shouldn't be I think you're having kind of that hysteria laugh because it is so distressing when you start to figure it out. And when you're done, I have another story about Neo next. Okay. So the rest of the story that she told about the corn was that you can't, if you want to get crop insurance or you want to get any kind of guarantee from the corn seed company, you have to buy the seed that is coated in the Neonics. And other stuff too. Yes. And so. Roundup ready. Let's just be honest. You well, know that's what it, it I'm is. not even talking about Roundup Ready. I'm just talking I know, about- but I'm saying it, it has it, it does though. It has Roundup and the Neonics on it because it's a particular company that most people buy their corn from. But keep going. Anyway, so she said, you know, if a, they have shown that there has been nothing, no nothing about the use of Neonics has increased corn yield at all. In other words, it hadn't done a thing. No. Hadn't no, done a no. thing. But they're all kind of locked into it because you can't get crop insurance. You can't get any guarantees on the seed unless you buy the neonic seed. So that was distressing. It's like somebody needs to break the bond between the chemical company and the farmers and the insurance companies and say, this thing's not working. Why don't we just, you know, all bets are off. So yeah. what's your story, D? Okay, so I didn't know all of that about the corn. I knew that it was Roundup Ready, but I didn't realize that every single piece was also dipped in neonics, which is distressing. Okay, so, and I've told this story before. I'll tell it quickly. Years and years ago, we were somewhere, 
And Jessica Walliser was there too. She's the, our friend who's an entomologist, who's also an editor. Okay. Yes. And she's written several really good books on insects. And we were in this lady's garden and this garden was really beautiful. I remember. Beautiful. You remember mm-hmm. this garden. It was in it was Chicago. really beautiful. And it was it in Chicago. Is that where it was? Okay. So mm-hmm. I walk into this garden and I'm looking around and it is pristine. It is perfection. It is silent. It is completely silent in that garden other than people talking. And I walk over to a passion flower vine and the passion flower vine is blooming beautifully. And I said, oh, I bet you have Gulf fritillary butterflies because you have passion. She says, why? Why do you think that? Immediately, the owner of the garden, not Jessica. Jessica was behind her. And I said, well, I mean, it's their larval host plant and I they eat mine up. And she said, oh, heavens, no, I hope not. She said, I treat everything in this garden with systemic pesticide. Terrible. And Jessica's mouth made an O behind her, right? And that's when I realized that there wasn't an insect in that garden or a bird. I remember. And I just stood there and I said, oh, because I didn't know what to say because you can't be rude to somebody in their garden and you don't want to be anyway. But I was just astounded. And I've actually used that story in a lot of my talks And we have a lot of bugs in my garden. It means that sometimes I have to cover plants like that I want to eat. Yes. Things like that. Yes. But I have bird song. Yes. I do too. It's important. And I have all these rare moths that until I got into moths and butterflies, I didn't notice. I have tons of them. Because you don't use these systemic insecticides. I don't use insecticides at all. Neither do I. Because the other thing is you think, well... So I kill a few moths or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, if there are birds that are needing that moth larva as part of their food chain, the birds start to go someplace else because there's no place to eat in your garden. Like you said, they have there was nowhere no... to feed their young. So, so it's a complicated issue and is. I'm not here to make people feel guilty, but I, I have really found the decline of insects in the United States is to be really alarming. Uh-huh. And I feel a real pledge that's more important to me than anything else now. And now I'm not I'm gonna admit when I quit using any insecticides, I mean nothing other than yeah, soapy yeah, water. Yep. Yeah. It was a good two years of brutality in the garden. Everything ate everything. And I just kind of stood back and thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? But I just hung in there and before long the balance was achieved. Birds were here. Birds start to eat, birds eat a ton of insects in the spring. They do. But it's a complicated issue. This is just one little piece, well, one big piece of it. Well, I have one more neonic story to tell. Okay. And then we'll get it. We'll wrap up with some positive stuff. I promise. I promise. Good, good, good. good. In fact, you know what? I'm not going to tell my story. Let's just wrap this thing up on a high note. So the one thing that, that Ellen said Several times, if somebody related a story about insecticide use or seeing somebody, she says, the label is the law, especially she said she has a pesticide applicator license because, you know, mm-hmm. she managed 50,000 acres. Huge area. Yeah. They, they use glyphosate. They, and, you know, and if worse came to worse and they had to use an insecticide, you know, they were very careful. She said the label is the law. So if you see a pesticide applicator guy who is not, say, wearing appropriate safety equipment, then, you know, they've broken the law and they can lose their license. True. The other thing she said was that Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart, when this neonic problem became, home gardeners became aware of how systemic the insecticide was and that it can travel to other plants. And and how it was being used everywhere. Yes. Because it was. Because they, in their defense, they really thought they had hit a breakthrough and it wasn't going to be as Harmful. Well, they thought if we just treat it with this systemic, then, you know, <laughs> whether the insect is present or not, you know, that it's like, okay, it'll kill it. So those Home Depot, they were all like, we're going to only have non flowers, not treated with neonics. And she said, that seems to have been pushed away and they kind of ignore it now because it's not as much in the, in the news. So you should ask, and if they don't know, then it's probably they are treated. And, and try can to take, grow more things from seed. To grow more yourself. things from seed yourself. It can take several years for this systemic insecticide to actually get out of the plant. Or then, the soil, if you're using the pour-over kind. Yes. Because you pour and, it into the soil. 
So the American Beauty Native Plants brand, they are committed to not using neonics. And I actually went to their website earlier today. Mm-hmm. In addition to having very beautiful flowers, it says right there on the websites, we're not using neonicotinoids or whatever they're called. And so that that brand shows up at various garden centers and nurseries here in my town. And I think I will look for it more when I'm yeah. out shopping. And you'll see it more from local nurseries, right? I've yeah. And if everybody just keeps asking, and then when they say, no, we can't guarantee there's no neonics, if you just, it doesn't matter, turn around, turn and walk away and go find something else. Yeah. Or, or grow some things from seed. There are beautiful plants we can grow from seed. There are beautiful plants we can grow from seed. So if anybody's like, oh, I'm depressed, go look at American Beauty Native Plants website. They have beautiful flowers. That's my high note. <laughs> also, go buy some zinnias. By the way, zinnias.com, zinniaseeds.com or whatever it is, those people that have the farm, they have another, they found more seeds because they got all their deliveries done. Yes. And they announced they're having another big fundraiser sale of their pretty pastels. Guess who did not go over there? D did not go over there because did you didn't not. go over there because Florette 40 million Florette posted about oh, they're going to have zinnias and you could like check which one she thought you might like just to give them an idea. And one of our listeners and I'll have to go back and look at the email. We had that assignment that said, as soon as they have them, you need to let D know. Yes, one of our listeners they did. did. They did. So and you and I had already clicked on there. <laughs> So we we told them which ones we loved. So shall I do the next quote? Yes. I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. G.K. Chesterton. What a brilliant guy. That is a brilliant guy. That's a nice one for this week of Thanksgiving. So for vegetables, kind of a segue from our winter squash topic, boards. Now we're going to talk about gourds because you know what? We haven't talked about gourds in a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I'm reminded that the gourds. I have in the past. I haven't lately. I have never grown a gourd. Oh, well, Dee, let, okay. So the American Gourd Society, their, e, their mailing address is Kokomo, Indiana. Oh, well, of course you've grown a gourd. I don't, I, you probably don't know where Kokomo is, do you? I know the song by the Beach Boys. So I have a funny story. I had a friend in college (laughs) and she lived up in Michigan and her dad worked for General Motors. And he says, we're moving to Kokomo. And she (laughs) thought they were moving to Japan. Oh, I bet she did. Because it sounds Japanese, but it's not. It's not. It's a, it's a town, a, a small city, I guess. It's, it's like a 30, 45 minutes north of Indianapolis, big automo, automobile manufacturing plants were up there so anyway that's kokomo and also home of the american gourd society two ways to think about it so one is plant a few seeds give them something to climb up and then walk away for the summer and just let them climb and grow and climb and grow until the end of the season and then you can go pick some they are pretty and they make a pretty plant and you know what a lot of people put them on arbors uh huh. You know, if they aren't going to grow something that's ornamental, like a, well, I guess gourds are ornamental, but like a rose, for example, or in my case, on my arbors now because my roses died, I have American wisteria. So you could, I see a lot, especially in vegetable gardens, I see gourds on arbors, and I think they're charming. Yes, and there's some picture that's been on the internet for years that shows some big long arbor walkway where it has gourds, and then all the Gourds are hanging down. I think so. that that is actually a, a garden in England that I visited, and it was a walled garden because they also have other plants that they plant at different times of the year. And it is a great picture, one of those great photographs. Now, the other way you could grow gourds, and this is the way I think people in the gourd society do it, is as the gourd grows, they manipulate it. So they might, like if it's a really long gourd, they might like slowly twist it so it becomes like a twisty curly cue kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or they might get those those plastic casings and you can put an immature gourd in it and then the gourd will kind of grow to fill out the casing and then you can take it the plastic casing off at the end of the season and it looks like a face or something. And people do that with pumpkins. Mm-hmm. So I so suspect awesome. that neither one of us are going to grow gourds and spend that much time worrying about the shape of them. No, only people in the Gourd Society would do that. Or if you were doing it with kids, 
you could definitely do it with kids. And then I thought about the birdhouse gourds, which you wrote down here. And mm-hmm. those are the ones that I think are especially cute. And they are. And make them into birdhouses. Yes. And so we'll go through three types of gourds because they actually, I was kind of surprised when I looked it up, three different species. So plain old ornamental gourds are the cucurbita people, which is like pumpkins and stuff. Basically okay. grow them, pick them in the fall. They have bags of them for sale at the grocery store if you want to put them out for t- decorations. Technically edible, but I don't think anybody's going to eat them. Yeah, I'm not going to eat a gourd. Okay. Then the birdhouse one, which is Legionaria Ciceraria. Yeah. And that so. one, it's kind of shaped, has a pear shape. So you grow it, you dry it, and you cut a hole and basically empty out all the contents when they're dry and it becomes like a birdhouse. People used to use those as as bowls and stuff way back, didn't they? Yes, you could you could cut it in just a certain way and make like a water dipper yeah. or something out of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you grew them. And did you make them into birdhouses? I made one birdhouse. Yeah. It's a little bit of work because you have to get a, a pole saw or something to make the hole. And Well, and you, you know. got to get the thing to dry without rotting. Which is a little bit of work, I bet. It's a little bit of work. And I probably didn't have instructions. And then the one you hate the most. Why do I hate it? I don't know. You always, I always thought you hated the loofah sponges, which is loofah cylindrica. No, I don't hate them. I just don't want to grow them. Okay. But I, and so I don't want to use them because they scratch my skin, but I get that people like them. Yeah. I don't really have any feelings about them. So that gardener on Instagram that I now follow, Dirty Punk Gardener, yeah. I think that's his name. Yeah. He grew ton of loofahs and he's been experimenting about when to pick them and all that kind of stuff. So that's been, and he's letting them all dry so he can have these loofah sponges, which he, he's got like 50 of these things. And it's like, how many sponges does a guy need? Right. And that's the other thing about gourds is you get a lot of them sometimes. Yeah. But back in the old days when they needed bowls, they made great bowls. So here's the thing about gourds. Yep. It's a long way to temporary. It's a long way to maturity. 120 days. Yeah. And so you want to get these in the ground as soon as the ground's warm enough. They can be attacked. Perhaps grow them in a hill. Yeah, grow them in a hill. So that they warm up faster or in raised beds. Yep. They definitely need strong support. This is not, you know, we talked about the big arbors and things. Mm-hmm. And we had a chain link fence next to the garden when I was growing up. And I think most of the time my dad planted cucumbers along the fence. But I think I talked him into gourds once along the fence. So. I mean, I think they're fun to grow. And I think people like them. And they grow them for kids and they're cute ornamentally and I'm not growing them though, because I just, I only have so much, you know, vegetable garden space. I got a big idea for you, D. You always have one. What? You need, you've got a chain link fence along your, don't you somewhere that no. you, cause you attach tomatoes to it. No, I have, no, I have hog fencing in the center of my drive, old driveway that I that Well, hog fencing, chain leg, you know. They're different. Take, I know, but take one of those. No. And plant gourds because your granddaughter will think that is so fun. She'll just want to eat them. And she loves tomatoes more than me. So I grow those for her. And I'm growing more Armenian cucumbers this year because those were fabulous. That's you know what? I, I have a post-it note right here. I have a post-it note that says Armenian cucumbers because I'm going to grow some. They were amazing. Not they didn't, burpless, not bitter, nothing bothered them. Prolific. Anyway, they can be bothered by squash bugs and vine borers. So if that's a problem in your garden, it's not going to be any different. Probably with, cucumber uh, beetles too, because, you know, cucurbit, probably, especially probably. the cucurbit ones. Well, there you go. All about gourds because it is that festive time of the year where gourds are found. Yeah. Now, I thought I had a really old book on gourds and I thought it was probably in a pile to get rid of. And I I looked through my piles. I think you got rid of it. No, that's a different gourd book. Different one. The newer one. This one is from like the 60s or 70s. Yeah. I I couldn't find it, but I found this other book by like a a lost lady of garden writing. So, you know, there you go. That was worth it. Yeah, there you go. And we started reading an old book that we had, which if you'll do the next quote, we will talk about. Just after the death of flowers and before they are buried in snow, there comes a festival season when nature is all aglow. 
aglow with a mystical splendor that rivals the brightness of spring, aglow with a beauty more tender than aught which fair summer could bring. Emmeline B. Smith. You know, this year, our color in Oklahoma was fabulous because we had those two freezing days and then warm days. And I really think it was a very, it was just really a festival season. Now things are starting Mm -hmm. to, like the leaves are falling off the trees. We're really in November now. So on the bookshelf, you said, oh, I found this book again. And you said, do you still have it? And I found it too. And I started reading it again. I realized after about a third of it, I was like, I have read this whole book. It is delightful. It's called Flowers and a Village and an, an Entertainment for Flower Lovers by Wilfred Blunt. It's a gold noldy. It was first published in 1963. Yeah. But then Timber Press republished it in 2006. And the reason why I thought of it is because, once again, it is a series of letters. And I love me a book of letters. Mm-hmm. Fake letters. In this Fake case. letters. Yeah. Fake letters. Wilfred Wilfred. Blunt was a very famous garden writer and he wrote some other stuff too. And he's English and he kind of did it. I mean, it's, it's almost like an allegory, but not really because it's not something pretending to be something else except for he's pretending to be Wilfred Sharp. And he's writing these letters to his fictitious niece. And actually I, I wrote that wrong. It's to his goddaughter. Oh, that's right. Goddaughter. I thought, no, she's his niece too. She's his goddaughter and no. his niece, isn't she? Oh, I her mother's his sister because that's a whole thing where she comes to visit and gripes at him yeah, about his lawn. Probably, I think she's his niece and goddaughter. But you know what? It doesn't matter. He writes to this child who's an older child, and I swear she has polio. She has something, and she's up in Scotland, and she can't like she can't move, move her legs. First. Yeah, she can't move, and so you know. Which is, a you know, it's some mystery element. It's a convenient excuse why she can never come visit his garden. Apparently, she's a gardener, too. Yes. And so they talk about gardens and people and the people of the village, which were loosely based on people he knew in real life. And he lived in a place called... The village, the fake village is Dewberry, and it's near a fake town called Dorking. Dorking. And he Which is I love those two names. So funny in it because he's bought this old house and he doesn't really care anything about the house at all. Although the house is in pretty good shape, but other than it have a library and then outside though, the man who had the house before him has done nothing for years. And so he's, he reminds me a little bit of Beverly Nichols. Yes. Very fun read. And the part where, I was I read last night the part where he and his sister his sister came to visit and they started fighting about his lawn. Yes. Because it's weedy. That was funny. And I thought to myself, "Oh my gosh, in the 60s, that's right, because chemicals for lawn care became popular after World War II especially, and lawn mowers became even more popular power mowers, and the 60s is when the monoculture grass lawn became a thing because before that lawns had clover lawns had all kinds of stuff and he talks about plantain in it which i never Mm -hmm. thought about plantain much until i was a beekeeper and plantain is a really useful plant to make a salve that if you get stung by bees and it's also a really good plant for pollinators so i just chuckled and chuckled last night when i was reading this book and i read a couple of letters every night before i go to sleep yeah, I read it over lunch and stuff. I'm all the way up to June the 29th. So I'm I think in, I'm further along than you are. Well, mine says November, but it might be the previous November. And, you know, this is one of those books. We're both reading the hard copy. I don't think you can get it on a Kindle. No, I don't think so. But if I get it, if I had it on a Kindle, I would be highlighting and taking pictures of all kinds of quotes over and over and oh, over. And I thought I, I should be marking up this book. And it's like, I like this one. I like this one. I like this one. But years ago, I wrote a blog post about a haughty culturalist, H-A-U-G-H-T. That was something I had read in his book. And he's somebody that thinks they're better than others. Yeah. There's a few of those out there. Yeah. Like, (laughs) uh, you know, like, like somebody who puts systemic insecticides all through their garden. So the insects don't. Anyway. God forbid. 
God forbid. So it's a fun read of Flowers in a Village and Entertainment for Flower Lovers. It is sadly out of print, but I think you can still buy good used copies via Amazon or wherever you buy good used copies of books. Yeah. And we'll leave a link. It's worth reading. It's really fun. I will never get rid of it because it makes me laugh. Oh, no, no, no. This is a keeper. Ready for the next quote? I am. This is the last lines of The Language of Flowers by James Gate Percival. Then gather a wreath from the garden bowers and tell the wish of thy heart in flowers. That's how I felt yes. when I was making those ornaments because I would yeah. run out and clip some, because all I took all flowers out of my garden. And so nice. it was like seeing the garden again. And then I would dry them in the microwave and then I would make my little ornaments and I'd show them to the guys. They were watching the game and they were like, oh, that's pretty. So if the thought counts, mm-hmm. I knew you were doing this. And I thought early last week, I thought, you know, I have a bunch of dried flowers from my garden. I should put some in an envelope and ship them off to Dee and she can use oh, them. And that's then nice. I didn't. That's okay. So it's the thought that counts. It is the thought that counts. So for our dirt there, in case you haven't heard, there's a new plant hardiness zone map out. And I have seen it all over Instagram, all over Facebook, in every gardening group. I talked to the Arkansas master gardeners about it, and they all knew about it. And pretty much, here's the interesting thing. Are you going to read all the scientific stuff that you brought in here? Well, I was just going to say, so there's, there's the previous map was from 2012. The new map is 2023. And about half the country moved a half zone warmer. Exactly. That's the most important part. So here's what the news, one news source said that the 2023 map uses data from 13,412 weather stations. The 2012 map utilized 7,983. Right. So the current map, they said, is more accurate, detailed, incorporates a lot more data, and says we're about 2.5 degrees warmer than the 2012 map. And the Across central, the continental United States. And the central plains and the Midwest, which is where we are, yep, generally warmed the most. And the southwestern part stayed about the same. I went mm-hmm. up half a zone. You went up half a zone, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. the thing I keep telling people who keep sending me the map, and thank you, everyone. I'm so glad that you guys are paying attention to this because it is important. The thing I keep running back to them is, This does not account for all the crazy weather events that we now have in the Central Plains. So even though we're half a degree warmer overall, we have had more snow, more rain some years. Some years were hotter than hot. Some years we have no rain at all. So you cannot just rely on the hardiness zone map to suddenly decide you want to have camellias. For example, you got to think really hard before you plant a camellia and decide where you're going to put it for a microclimate. And you're also going to need acidic soil. So the hardiness zone map only incorporates one piece of data, really. Yes. There's a lot of and I've data. Seen, I've seen on several sites that while this might entice you to go out and try an inexpensive perennial, for example. Sure. They advise when it comes to trees and shrubs, camellias would be an example. Don't rush out and invest all kinds of money thinking suddenly you can grow camellias or whatever, because it may survive for several years and then you get that one winter and it kills it back to the ground and you know, or you're that right, one right, summer where you started here. from. You know, or that one summer that's hotter and blazes. Camellias are very hardy in my part of the world. And I see them for sale and I want one again. But boy, 2011 killed the camellia I had, and it was the summer. So I always caution people that, you know, and I I want you to read that last paragraph because I think it's important. So this is the last thing that the USDA said, temperature updates to plant hardiness zones are not necessarily reflective of global climate change because of the highly variable nature of the extreme minimum temperature of the year and the use of increasingly sophisticated mapping methods and the inclusion of data from more weather stations. So it may be that they're just getting more accurate because I've seen a lot of people online say, oh, this is totally indicative of climate change. And I'm like, well, no, not exactly. So 
I'm not saying the climate isn't different. It's going to take years of study in yes. other and so areas. The, isn't. Having more weather stations. So if you look at, say, a map of Indianapolis, mm -hmm. you will see that most of Indianapolis, including me, moved to 6B. That's an urban warming effect. Right. But if you go west of the city where I think my sister is, she's still 6A. Right. So she didn't really change. And if you go south of me, you go back to 6A again. You get colder again. That's why people can grow stuff in Oklahoma City that I can't grow. Yeah. Even though I'm not that far north. Or people north of me in Guthrie can grow things I can't grow. And I watch spring arrive in Guthrie way before it arrives in my neighborhood because we're rural. Yeah, which reminds me, we both know Irvin, yeah. who grows tropicals. And he had a garden in an, a very urban area of the city. And it was just packed with tropical plants. Mm -hmm which he could grow because he had a he would said he was about a half zone warmer cuz when he moved out to the country he lost that urban heat yeah and so it makes a big difference and that's kind of the microclimates thing too it's always 2 or 3 degrees cooler at my house in the summer too which i appreciate in the summer so interesting data and oklahoma has one of the best weather reporting datas in the entire United States because of the tornado threat and some, and also because of crops. Our mesonet, our Oklahoma mesonet is considered the best, one of the best in the United States. And it not only records temperatures and all kinds of things like that, but moisture in the soil and everything else. So they invested in ours a long time ago, but a lot of us did move up half a zone. So, because isn't Norman, Oklahoma, where the National Weather Service headquarters or something? If yes, and the tornado warning system is there too. There you go. For the whole anyway, United So that was, you couldn't on this thing, let's see, it was November 15th. I think it was Thursday night. It's just like it exploded across the internet. New hardiness yeah. zone, new hardiness zone. I think people got really excited because they thought, oh, good, I can grow things I've never grown before. Well, just no. hold on. You may be able to, but you may not be able to. Yes. Who knows? I'm still reminded, and I looked it up so I could see. The coldest it ever was in Indianapolis, negative 27 degrees on not on January the 19th, 20, or, uh, 1994. And that's still in this data. I think. Negative 27. Yeah, I don't know when. I'll have to look mine up. I haven't looked it up in a while. Okay, you want to do the next quote? I do. It's a poem called November Comes, November Goes by Elizabeth Coatsworth. November comes and November goes with the last red berries and the first white snows, with night coming early and dawn coming late and ice in the bucket and frost by the gate. The fires burn and the kettles sing and earth sings to rest until next spring. That's beautiful. It by is. By the way, there's snow in our forecast for after Thanksgiving. We'll see if it actually happens. That's that's pretty early for Oklahoma, but they're saying it's going to be a wet, snowy winter this year because of El Nino. Yeah, I haven't really looked. I just know that after Thanksgiving, I'll put my Christmas lights up. And my neighbors that have been putting them up the last few weeks when it was really nice and warm out, they're probably like, you know, I'll be out there. It'll be 30 degrees and I'll be trying to string lights up, but that's okay. Rabbit holes. Yours First. is deep. Mine's deep, deep, but mine's important for people who garden in the Southeast. Ready? I am. All right. Carol already knows this. It's all about something called alpha gal syndrome, which actually sounds like a female superhero, but it's not. It comes from, it's an allergy that comes from the Lone Star Tick, which is now spread into Oklahoma. And apparently I have it because I was bitten by this tick and it makes you have an allergy to meat from any animal that is a mammal. Are cows mammals? Cows are mammals. You have Pigs? To, yes. I can't have cow, pig, lamb, lamb bison, lamb. venison. Any, I can have feathers. Elk? Moose? I can't have elk or moose. No. No, I was feeling really bad. Okay, so one more thing. You have to be really careful of tuna, which I just found out about because... If you get the kind of tuna that is gathered up in nets, sometimes dolphins, 
You know, and dolphins are mammals. End up in tuna. So you have to be careful of tuna too, unless you get the kind that they actually catch with a line. And I'm like, okay, it's a little overwhelming this past week when I found out and I've done some research on it. It is a true allergy, not like my gluten issue, which is a sensitivity. <laughs> and so you can actually have anaphylaxis. And she told me I need to carry around an EpiPen, which surprised me. Here's the thing. my problem was extreme exhaustion and joint pain. So I went to a new doctor and she tested me for everything under the sun. And then this came up and she was really serious about it. And she goes, feathers or fish, that's what you can have. And I said, okay. Feathers or fins. Yeah. So there we go. Feathers or fins. I can have that. Some people can also not have dairy. For me right now, I'm still having some dairy. And so what else do I want to say? It's an allergy to meat sugars and it was first formally identified as originating from tick bites in the United States in 2002 by Thomas Platts Mills. And it was independently identified by Cheryl Van Noonan in Australia in 2007. And it's now considered, this is why I'm talking about it on our podcast, it is now considered a hidden epidemic, especially in the southeastern U.S. So I'm going to have to wear clothes that are dipped in pyrethrin you know, like hikers do, like people in the South, I mean, in the Northeast, so that they don't get Lyme disease. I'm going to have to start wearing those because I get bit by ticks. I mean, I live out in the country and there are deer. And so if you aren't, the, the reason that it's so important is that if you aren't bit again, in maybe one to two years, you might be able to eat meat again, maybe. And it was hard to identify for a lot of people before there was a blood test or before they knew to look for it in a blood test, because people would eat the meat, say at dinner, and they would wake up not able to breathe or hives or whatever at like 2am, because it goes Hmm. through your system. So they couldn't figure out why all these people kept showing up at the hospital really, really sick. In my case, I don't eat that many organ meats. And that's where the highest concentration is. And the people who end up in the hospital often eat organ meat. And that's my deep rabbit hole. That is a deep rabbit hole. And I was going to say the Southeast United States more prevalent, but it is, it is found elsewhere in the United States. Yes. So just because you live in Indiana, because I actually know somebody that knows somebody that has it in Michigan that got it. Yes. It has been a problem up North too. That's right. Because I read about it the other day from someone. So it's interesting to note. And I will say this since I, I took meat out of my diet. Three weeks ago when I first got the IG tests back, because I was like, uh-huh. I looked it up and I was like, what? Before I talked to her, I didn't realize it was a true allergy. I just thought it was another sensitivity. And I was like, oh, okay, here we go again. And I, I don't have the joint pain I had. So that's good. That's good news. That is good news. Good, bad news or you- bad, good news. And you can have all the, it's a good thing. You know, we talk about the beans and you have those Rancho Gordo beans. Is that the, yeah, yeah. It's a good thing. You love them beans, D Rancho Gordo beans. Yes. And it's a good thing. And I, you know, I'm losing weight because I've changed my diet. Imagine that. There you go. Okay. So what was your rabbit hole? So mostly I've been reading that uh, flowers and a village by Wilfred Blunt, but I resisted the temptation to stop reading and, a, write down all the quotes and B, go look up the sources. But I did, I finished prototype for a super secret Christmas gift thing that turned out quite nice. And I'm very excited about it. Details after Christmas. Cool. I know about it because you told me. Mm-hmm. All right. Garden commissions. What did, I didn't write one down, but I can just tell people after you tell yours. So it's kind of like the big switch from outdoor to indoor here. And so, like I said, I've mowed at the lowest level that I'll ever mow. And I'll probably mow one more time just to pick up leaves to put on the vegetable garden. Then it's on to the house plants and the microgreens, ordering seeds. Do I buy more holiday plants? You know, they're so pretty out in the stores. Of course, if I if I see the Christmas rose, the Helleborus Niger, I would definitely buy I would those. Buy that, just because you can put it outside afterwards. You you can put it outside afterwards. And I actually wrote a blog post about that yesterday, I think. Yeah, yesterday. And and just to encourage these florists and grocery stores and stuff to stock the Christmas rose, I'll just buy them to make sure that they fly off the shelves, so to speak. So anyway, that's my week. Oh, and Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. I bought a cyclamen and I then I went out of town and forgot to water it. So it drooped, but I think it's okay. 
Yeah, they they perk back up real quick. Mm-hmm. I put it out in the greenhouse and forgot it. What am I doing? Well, not much because it's Thanksgiving week, but we're still getting the leaves up off of the grass in the front yard. When the fire came through, we have a big leaf sucker shredder thing for right. our yard. and Because we, we live in a forested forest. So nobody got on to us last week about the leave the leaves campaign. Thank you. I do leave the leaves. I just don't leave. We told them not to. We did. We asked them not to. Please don't. So we're going to get a few more leaves up. Oh, I didn't finish telling that part. Okay. So this big leaf sucker that we have that he bought for my birthday years ago, it's awesome because it shreds the leaves and then I keep them in piles or I throw them back on the vegetable garden or the cutting flower garden or in the meadow or wherever. And here's the bad news. It burned the hoses off the side of it. And it burned the tires, but it didn't burn the actual big box that's metal. So we went to all this trouble and found all these pieces for it, Bill and I did. But it turns out that the engine has some sort of a drain that is a plastic plug. And we didn't realize it it melted the plastic plug. And so Bill went to put it all together yesterday. And then, of course, it leaked out stuff. And he goes, oh, shoot, this has a plastic plug. So we've ordered that now. And then he was going to do... We have a lawnmower that also shreds leaves. If you put on this right attachment to John Deere, well, it rained. So we didn't do that. So my goal is get the leaves just away from my front door because they're they're this, how far is that? A foot. They're a foot deep by my front door. So first nice day, I'm going to go out there and rake those up and get rid of them because they're getting on my nerves. So that's it. Sounds good. Well, we want to thank you for listening to The Garden Angelus. I hope you've hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. We publish every week on Wednesdays at 12 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you listen to Apple Podcasts, we'd love a five-star review that helps us get noticed by others. Could you also share our podcast with your friends? Word of mouth has been the best way to get the word out there. And be sure and check out our show notes for links for more information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. And here's a tip. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter, The Garden Angelus at Substack.com, also linked to in our show notes. If you do, you get the link to listen to the podcast a day early. And if you want to help support us, use those affiliate links. If you buy something after clicking through on them, we earn a small commission and it costs you nothing. Or you can set up a monthly subscription through Buzzsprout or make a one-time donation through PayPal. Thank you to everyone who's already done so. It helps us pay for this podcast. It was lovely to chat with all of you over the garden gate. Bye until next week. Bye, everybody.